0: Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. Christophe Rumier began working at the Rumier family domain in Chambolle moussigny in the early 1980s after going to school for analogy. And the 1980s were a real key period of transition for Burgundy. Dominique Lafon of Lafon was part of that same generation as Christophe, and Dominique recalled that 1980s period in I'll Drink to That, episode 438. What he described was a generation of young people who really might have been expected to pursue another profession with the means that they had available to them, but who decided instead to stay in Burgundy and vinify wine as the market for those wines also began to improve. These young people took up work at their family domains after studying analogy in school, while also being in regular contact with the older generations of vintners who had never been to school for wine. Here is how Dominique explained the mix of generations and approaches, at that time, in the 1980s, in Burgundy. It's interesting that you had so much exposure with that older generation because you're sort of associated with the next generation of mm-hmm. like Grévo, Rumier, yourself, and then you used to taste with Patrick Bees a lot, right?
1: Yeah, and uh, Jacques Seyss and all this group. I think it's interesting because my generation has one foot in the old time and one foot in the new generation. When I was young, I've known Pierre Ramonet, for example. I've known uh, Mr. Renault from Rayas, Jacques D'Angerville, and other people, and those were like old-time people, real old-time people. And uh, I was a kid, and Pierre Ramonet was talking to me. Um, We are the generation that switched things in Burgundy, but we've known those old people. We've known or they talk to us about how hard It was in the past to work, to sell the wine, to make a living out of it. We had a a once-a-year meeting at the restaurant Alain Chapelle with all those producers. And uh, I was very young. Uh, Henri Jaillet was here too, Uh, Jacques D'Angerville, of course, and and Pierre Ramonet, exceptional person, and Mr. Renault from Rayas. And one day I was sitting next to each other, and Pierre Ramonet was speaking with that very heavy Burgundian accent. And uh, Mr. Renault was speaking with his southern accent. And they were fighting because they were not understanding each other. So I started d- translating for, for those guys so that they understand
0: each other. That's amazing. Yes. And Jaillet must have had some influence on you because for most of your career you didn't use stems, right? Yes, in a way.
1: Uh, Henri Jaillet was uh, someone very special. He was really nice with us, the new generation. So we used to have uh, a visit a year, an appointment with him to taste in his salad with Christophe Roumier, with Etienne Griveau, sometimes with Patrick Bees. And yes, he was a no-stamp guy, completely. Mm, and lovely person.
0: Did you see that that generation was working different in the vineyards, your generation? Like uh, Rumier Griveau, yourself?
1: Uh, first of all, all of us had learned viticulture and analogy in university, we thought it was uh, really time for a change because a lot of people were uh, not that happy with the general level of quality in Burgundy. And we quickly found out we had to work in the vineyard. We had to do it another way. So like uh, thinking about uh, the effect of weed killers, thinking about the effect of heavy fertilizers, chemical fertilizers like nitrogen and all that, was uh, something important, Uh, and at the same time we were talking about winemaking, and I think what my generation brought in cellars is being cleaner, being uh, more serious about everything, more control on fermentation, yeast following everything. But the major thing has been uh, getting better
0: grapes. Dominique emphasized how improved viticulture in the 1980s brought about better grapes to work with, and this was a point that was also highlighted by exporter Becky Wasserman in her interview in episode 430
2: of I'll Drink to That.
0: You think the viticulture has gotten better?
2: Oh, immensely so. And it was Christophe Rumier who actually, he and a small group, Andrei Chelychev, wanted to meet the young people, so I had Christophe and Etienne Grivo and Patrick Bees and over you know, to have a drink with André. And Christoph said to him, the biggest change is in the viticulture. Because I guess it was sort of during the Parker era, the concentration was in the winery, not in the vineyards. And now the concentration has to be for good viticultural practices. And so that was a big change in the 80s.
0: Jean-Pierre de Smet, who founded Domaine de L'Arlo in Nuit-Saint-George in the 1980s, after moving to that region from another part of France, recalled in episode 455 how the Burgundy Vigneron would frequently get together for group tastings and dinners in the 1980s.
3: People are are very friendly in, uh, in the area, and uh, it has not been difficult for us, let's say, to be uh, adopted by the community, and uh, and specifically, of course, thanks to Jacques and Patrick, with a lot of others uh, producers, and uh, it became a very good group of friends. And for many, many years, we have had uh, a dinner uh, every month, every single month, a dinner uh, with uh, between uh, 12 and 20 uh, people together in, uh, in a restaurant or at home but mainly in a restaurant and we managed to bring our bottles and it w- it was a great time
0: yes so that was sort of the tasting group with Romier and yes yes Christophe
3: Dominique Lafon uh, Veronique uh, Drouin uh, there were there yes
0: you can tell how those group tastings that Jean Pierre referred to allowed for vintners to get a handle on what certain choices in the winery would then mean for the resulting wines. Here's what Dominique Lafon said about the topic of destemming Pinot Noir, for instance.
1: As a joke, I always say that Côte might have been more wealthy than Côte because we could afford a destemmer.
0: Because, like Lafarge destems, for example.
1: Lafarge destems, Dangeron destems, De Monti was destemming also. And yeah, most of the people I, I saw in the Côte de Beaune were distemming. But uh, Roumier was doing, it was distemmed. Grivaux was all distemmed. Rousseau was distemmed. So the leaders of all clusters at that time were Patrick Bees, amazing wines, of course. DRC, Du Jacques. And uh, later on, Jean-Pierre Desmet at uh, Domaine de L'Arnaud. But they were all friends, so we could compare and talk about it and talk about all these techniques and see
0: how it was going. That seems like something that maybe your father's generation or people of that era wouldn't have had a chance to do that kind of tasting group. No,
1: because um, I think it was a time when everybody was very jealous of each other, when it was hard, it was tough to sell wine. I remember Patrick B's father, Simon B's, telling me, you know, one day I came to visit. And I told him, I told him, oh, I, I have another appointment this afternoon with clients. I'm, I have too much at the moment. It takes a lot of my time. And he just told me, listen, when I was young, we could hear a car coming in 70. Everybody was by the door expecting the guy would stop at our place to buy wine. So don't complain.
0: In the 80s, things really started to take off, right?
1: Yeah. When I started working with Becky, that was when the dollar was 10 to the franc, and it was crazy, crazy. The market opened in the U.S. The wines were not that expensive in Burgundy, and as I told you before, I could uh, sell wine on the phone.
0: Christophe Rumier is one of the people who was very much involved in the changing situation for vintners in the 1980s in Burgundy. And in this interview that's coming up, you'll hear him mention how that period affected him and his choices.
2: I'll
0: drink to that where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton.
2: I'm Erin Scala.
0: And here's our show today. I talk to winemakers all the time and something they tell me is that oxygen management is a key to aging wine. Finding the right balance is crucial. And that's why I recommend DM's revolutionary cork closures. With DM corks, winemakers can achieve precisely controlled oxygen management after a bottle leaves the winery, ensuring a wine that matures gracefully and reaches its full potential. With over 2 billion DM corks sold each year, it's clear that winemakers worldwide trust DM for consistent results, and DM has recently expanded the permeability options for their popular DM10 and DM30 closures, providing winemakers with even more flexibility to choose a cork that will guarantee the kind of wine life they envision, banish surprise dud bottles, and embrace DM closures. Your customers will thank you. In North America, DM products are exclusively distributed by G3 Enterprises. Ready to ensure the lifespan of your wines? Go to dm-closures.com forward slash IDTT to learn more. That's D-I-A-M closures with an S dot com forward slash IDTT for more information. Christophe Rumié on the show today from Chambeau Musigny. Hello, sir. How are you? Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you here, and uh, I'm doing fine. So your domain is called Domain George Rumié, still to this day, although there is also a Christophe Rumié label. And George Rumié was your grandfather. George Rumié was my grandfather,
4: who started the family estate in 1924. He married a woman whose family had already a small estate and also a small negotiation business. They would purchase some wine to other producers of the village, and they would bottle a part of that, but also they would sell. You know, in the 20s, lots of people were not bottling. They were selling their wines in casks, and they were doing something like that. When my grandparents married, they received the estate, the vineyards, as a dowry. But The value of the vines of this time was uh, not much. It was very little value because... These were times where it was difficult to live with wine. My grandfather was coming from a farming uh, family in the western part of Burgundy, where no vine is growing. There were uh, cattle and uh, cereals, and forest as well. So he had to learn about viticulture. The vine, what has to be the philosophy for a winemaker, also, how to manage a team and everything. He was just a farmer. And his first contact brought him to the Comte de Voguë, whose family estate is very famous. And um, probably the contact went quite well because the Comte de Voguë offered him to become his team manager in the vineyard. And uh, after my grandfather had made the first vintages of his own wine uh, with his wife's family estate, the Comte de Vogue realized my grandfather was able to make good wines and uh, he offered him to be also his winemaker. And this is how my grandfather was able to make his own wine because he had a salary from the, the vogue estate. And uh, also, before selling everything, he would keep one barrel per appellation for estate bottling to distribute to his wife's family. And this is how he started to estate bottle some of his production.
0: Because that was actually pretty early for estate bottling. There were very few people who were doing it, even though it was distributed to the family and so it wasn't sold to the states or anything like that.
4: Very few established estate were bottling their production, yes. And uh, very few wines from Burgundy were going overseas.
0: You mentioned de Vogue there, and that's one of the larger landholders in terms of crews in the Chambon-Muzoni area, like Muzoni, Bomar, Amaroos. And I think a lot of people think of Rumier and Devogue as very different things. But actually, your family has had a lot of history working at Devogue. So your grandfather worked there and then your uncle worked there.
4: Yes. My uncle, who is the second son of my grandparents, took uh, my grandfather's place in 1955 as uh, the manager of Domaine de Vogue from 55 until uh, 1985.
0: So it was your grandfather from the mid-20s to 55. Yes. And then your uncle took that? Yes. What's kind of interesting about that is that that was the older brother of your father. And so that uncle theoretically could have stayed and done the estate side. He could have done Rumier, But he chose not to do that. He took probably the better paying gig and went to go work for De Voguë. Also,
4: it was a question of personality. My father was uh, more uh, a discreet person, and probably said, "Oh, you choose," and I take
0: the position that you will live free. But your grandfather George—he must have been a fairly affable person because he made a good relationship very quickly with De Voguë, and then he made a friendship with Ponell in a period of time where negos and domains didn't always get along.
4: Yeah, exactly. Negotiants and uh, vintners were not immediate friends. They were not meant to be friends. But in the Mar, some vineyards came to be on sale in 1952. The Bellorget family, who was selling their Mar, they had a big holding of Mar, And they offered to uh, Bernard Claire, uh, Domaine Claire d'Au at this time. To purchase this vineyard of Bonnemar. My grandfather knew Bernard Clair quite well. And for Bernard Clair, this was too big a portion uh, of Bonnemar to purchase, even though the price was very fair. And uh, he said, Well, I have to find someone else just to make shares in the Bonmar, and we divide. And, and he approached my grandfather for that. And my grandfather said, Oh, yeah, okay. But that's also a little too much for, for me. From my pocket, and uh, we should find a third person. They approached uh, Monsieur Ponel, Jean Ponel, uh, negociant in Bonn, but also they had an estate in the family of Ponel. And uh, the three of them have purchased the Belorge section of Mar. Uh, they make shares in that, and it's how my grandfather's introduced their children, my mother and my father. It's after they purchased the vineyard of bonne that uh, my parents met at the, um, the Vendange. Between Ponel, De Vogueuay, and domaine Georges Romier, they made only one, one picking team of people. My mother was picking in this team, and it's how she met my father. They married in '54.
0: Because your mother was a Ponel. Yes, my mother was a Ponel. And I'll just kind of go back to this idea that George seems to have been a sort of extraordinary person. Because when you think that he entered the region in the 20s, and of course, he wasn't from that far away, but he was a cattle farmer, a cereal farmer, a man who looked after the forest. He comes to a new place. He starts an entirely different career looking after vines. And as you said, trying to manage a team. He quickly gets a pretty prestigious job. He makes a friendship with Ponell. And then he bought some of the key parcels. Some of the key arrangements happened during his tenure in terms of either metillage or actual purchase. A lot of the parcels, that's the time that they came in, in the 50s. Oh, yes. Some of the vineyards were
4: coming from the Konkan family, so my grandmother's family. Uh, but there are serious holdings that came also in the 40s and 50s where they were able to purchase vineyards for nothing almost. My father always told me that. At this time, purchasing the Bonmar, the production of two years was paying the purchase of the vineyard, and uh, today it's no longer like that. Yeah,
0: it's about 100 years now. <laughs> probably. <laughs> Something like that. Yes, probably. So your grandfather died when you were about seven years old. Exactly, yes, I was seven. So you probably don't remember him that much. No, 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 very little. But were there written records? Did he keep a diary, or were there notes around? I wish he
4: was, uh, but uh, no. I have nothing. So, and uh, I've questioned my father, but also my uncles, and they said, oh, no, no, I've never seen any notes taken by my uh, dad. And so, no, I, there's nothing. Nothing that I can uh, guess on what was his technical proceedings or key point of several vintages. I've no, also no personal notes about wine tasting, wine impressions, the way he was feeling with, no, nothing.
0: You've tried some of those wines, though. You've tried wines from the 40s and 50s that he made.
4: I'm lucky with that because he was bottling uh, some wines even in the 20s for the family purpose. Some were leftovers, not much, but enough to taste uh, once in a while uh, old wines from those periods. And the wines immediately fascinated me. These were so close to perfection sorts of wines that I've, I say, oh, I would like to do something that kind one day. And uh, what is fascinating with these wines, by the way, is the fact that with very little means, electricity, yes, but that's all, and very, very, very modest means, And with no specific intentions, they were achieving perfect wines. So it influenced me a lot on the fact that, after all, winemaking has to be extremely gentle. It doesn't mean a lot. The quality of the wine is probably somewhere else, and it has to lay in the vineyard then. If it's not the winemaking that makes the style of the wine, it's the vineyard that provides it. And I'm convinced with this very much.
0: He was doing vineyard management and helping make the wines at De Vogueway from some of the same crews. The same crews. Have you had a chance to do any side-by-sides there or look comparatively on those kind of productions? I was able to
4: taste a few times De Vogueway wines of the 40s and 50s, but these were not in the conditions where I could compare. And I have to admit that The De Vogue wines of the 40s and 50s that I have tasted carry the same style as my grandfather's wines left at home. They really have the same balance and uh, flavors. Yeah, they have common points.
0: Your dad would have been in his 20s when you were born and also when he took over working at Penel, right? My father
4: after he married my mother. So they married in 1957. My grandfather, Jean Ponelle, who was managing the Ponelle uh, Negotiant and Estate, offered my father to become uh, his uh, vineyard manager for the Ponelle Estate. And he started this in 57, 50, yes, uh, by the time when they married until 1971, and he was making the wine, the only making
0: the wine for the Ponel uh, estate. And so do you think that there was a lot of overlap with the what we would think of as the Rumier wines, the estate bottle wines of Rumier, between your grandfather on your father's side and your father? Did they do a lot of work together, or was it sort of one era and then the
4: next? My grandfather retired officially, let's say, in 1961, but he had already stopped the physical work earlier. They worked together probably 10 years or more even. My father was making the wines at the Georges Rommiers, let's say, after 55. I think he started his own winemaking under my grandfather's uh, observation, let's
0: say. So do you think there was a continuity there? Do you think that your dad sort of made wine like your grandfather, or do you think it was different?
4: He had uh, had some uh, enology uh, education uh, in Bonn. This was something simple because my father didn't want to insist with studies, uh, but he had learned some uh, enology, uh, a little bit, and so probably he has been influenced also with that. I'm sure he's, he has changed several steps in the winemaking by comparison to his own father, which is normal, after all. Sure. It's too bad, probably, but we never spoke of that. And I don't know why, because it it seemed to me natural to take the management after my father the way it was, and he transmitted it, telling me, well, you do what you think is good to do, with no reference to his own uh, experience, in fact.
0: So you were born in '58. And then by the 80s, you were working with your dad at the domain.
4: Yeah, yeah. I started full-time in 81 after my military service and uh, after I had passed my own uh, enology diploma also. And uh, I was not meant to stay. Uh, This was not something we had clearly decided with my father. But finally, I never moved out. Did you think about doing something else for a while? I didn't know what to do. I was very much interested into mathematics, physics, so I started to study in university around that, with no specific intention. I knew that winemaking was interesting me for precisely the biology, the mechanism of it. Uh, I knew little about wine itself. I had no specific taste myself. I had. Appreciated several wines many times and uh, I liked it, but I didn't have any kind of preference or nothing. So it was uh, an empty page for me. I mean, uh, I said at a certain point, well, okay, you will do a little bit of math, but you are not good enough to do research on that or physics. Uh, what to do finally? I said, maybe, maybe you can go for oenology, learn about that, you will discover uh, something else. This is still a bit of science, and so I I liked it, in fact. And so I obtained my diploma, and I said to my father, now I'm ready, and uh, what should I do? I can work a little bit with you. And my father didn't really, it was a little too early for him to have his son uh, with him. And uh, he said, okay, maybe if you want to help us a little bit, this was pruning time, come and prune, and then you
0: you do something else. And uh, so uh, I came and I stayed. And it's it's a really interesting time when you were in school, because of the way it worked, because Jacques says essentially went back to school to get his analogy diploma after he had already been making wine for a decade, you were in the same class. So, generationally, you became friends, joined a tasting group with Lafon, with Patrick Bees. It was a really interesting time to come in, late 70s, early 80s. Yes. It's a small world. I mean, um,
4: Jacques says is still living uh, i a mean, hundred meters away from the Claude Labussière. So, of course, I knew him and met him several times, many times, let's say. He has always been very friendly and very open to uh, the young guy who was just uh, playing around uh, only. And we... Became friends at the university because, uh, yes, he spent uh, some time at the university learning in the same time as me. And so we, we became more, f- more friends at this time. I probably have learned more about winemaking details with him, from him, than from my father, I think.
0: But it seems to have gone the other way, too. It seems that certain things that you did, he picked up on later, like Delayed Mallow, for example. Hey, it's Levy, and I just want to break in here for a moment, because what is particularly interesting about this moment in the interview is that I also have tape of Jacques Seyss talking about his relationship with Christophe Rumier from his perspective. And let me play that clip for you right now.
5: one of the first decisions is, is influenced by Christophe Rumié. Uh, Christophe Roumier is having always late malolactic. And I love this result. Christophe is pretty uh, someone I trust more in uh, winemaking. And before the arrival of Jeremy and Diana and Alec, if I had a problem, I would say, Christophe, come test my wines and tell me what you feel. Uh, so in '99. We, with Jeremy, already there, we have the same wine in a cold cellar and in a normal cellar. And one part does a late malolactic. We like the result. And since 1999, we try to have always late malolactic. I think, I think we never made as good wine as we make today. I think by the quality of selection of the lees, we can leave the wine on the lease nearly all their life, and I think uh, it's something new to me. Uh, That's a lease as such a plus for the wine, and so I'm very pleased with the result. And uh, some people ask me if I'm, I prefer to drink old wine I made. Uh, no, I much prefer to drink the wines made with the young generation.
0: So there's a couple of things in there, and one is that with a colder cellar, you were getting longer mallows, and that's because if you warm the cellar, the mallow goes faster. Yeah. And so you then built a cooler cellar. hmm And then moving since 99, the mallows have been delayed.
5: hmm They start later.
0: And then the second part of that was about lees, and it sounds like you're saying that the lees are cleaner so you can leave the wine on it longer because the sorting is better?
5: When the sorting is better, then before putting in cask, uh, the sorting of the lees, I would say. takes a boob out, look at the lees, and if, if they like the lees, we'll move the lees up before we put in cask so we'd have some lees in, in the cask.
0: So there's less racking now than there may have been? There is no
5: racking. often. Some wine have one racking, sometimes has no racking before bottling.
0: And so that would have been a change since what you were doing yeah. in the 70s. Yeah.
5: My trend in the, in the 70s and the 80s would have been to rack after malolactic. And now we don't rack after malolactic.
0: What Jacques is describing is a big shift in his approach to the wines at Domaine du Jacques, and a shift that was affected by his conversations with Christophe Rumier. And to better understand what was happening at Domaine Dujac before this change, let me play for you something that Jean-Pierre de Smet said in his interview. Jean-Pierre was working with Jacques Seyss at Domaine Dujac in the 1970s and the 1980s before Jacques made that shift in his approach to the timing of Mallow. Jean-Pierre de Smet contrasts the timing of a later Mallow with what he found when he was working at Domaine Dujac back at that time and then also what he found when he was working later at Domaine de L'Arlo in Weet St. George. When would mallow typically happen for the red wines? Typically,
3: it's the spring after the harvest. Uh, at L'Arlo, it was earlier. Generally speaking, before Christmas. And I think that's because of the world cluster. I, don't, I have no explanation, No, no chemical, technical explanation for that. But I really think that it comes because of the wall cluster. Discussing with friends, with Patrick Bees, with Jacques S, with Alain Grayot, All of us are using mainly wall clusters. And we, we have early mallows. So that's why I think there is a relationship between the early mallows. People say that it's better if it's later. I don't know. They are going through when they want.
0: Jacques Sais began working with a delayed mallow at Domaine du Jacques in 1999, and the timing of when mallow happens is something that Jeremy Sais, his son, described in episode 143 of All Drink to That as one of the handful of big decisions that you can make about your winemaking. Later in this interview, Christophe Rumier explains why he became interested in delaying the mallow in the wines at Rumier and how that affects the time the wines then spend on the Lees. The approach he developed is something that Jacques Says would later also adopt, as we've discussed. We'll return to Christoph's interview and that explanation about a delayed mallow after this brief message. I've been lucky enough to try some amazing wines while traveling over the years. Unfortunately, I've found that some of those same wines are really hard to find here in the United States. Whenever I run into trouble finding a favorite bottle, I go to IdealWine.com and they have what I'm looking for. Whether it is a hard-to-source bottle of Burgundy or a micro-production natural wine like I Need the Sun by Domaine de Miroir, I know there's a chance that Ideal Wine might have it available. And Ideal Wine's entire Paris inventory is available to American customers with just a click. The process is seamless, the site is easy to use, and orders are shipped directly to you. Head over to idealwine.com, that's I D E A L W I N E.com, to see for yourself what you could be drinking. It seems like there's been an active dialogue over the time.
4: Yeah, we exchanged a lot with Jacques. At that time, I had, uh, I've liked some wines, but with no no specific intentions in the winemaking. And clearly, I could taste my father's wines, I could taste uh, Jacques's wines, Du wines. And obviously, the wines are different. I could like the two of them, because they are different. And it became interesting for me, the fact that there are some actions, some decisions that are made in the winemaking that bring a style. And then, uh, you know, these are like, lego bricks that you build up together some different elements came together to me which made me think oh winemaking is interesting because you create something you have a grape but you can also bring a part of yourself in it with intentions which was not something i had realized before and uh, i took influences from many people also at this time There was uh, Henri Jaillet, who was already becoming more and more famous in the beginning of the 80s. And um, my father said, oh, you should go and and visit him. He's making good wines. And uh, I talked a lot with Henri, who liked uh, also to exchange with the young generation. And uh, I had finally two influencers who were making very different wines with very different techniques. This was something, yeah, I've learned a lot of that. And I obtained no recipe, which is a good thing also. I mean, there was nothing that I should do, but I had different influences. And finally, I think my winemaking proceedings, I prefer to say proceedings rather than techniques, are a combination
0: of all this. You're one of the more articulate people about winemaking that I've ever met, so we'll definitely get there. But... I think it would set the tone a little bit to speak about the vineyard holdings first. So the domain Georges Roumier is is
4: established physically in Chambol. Most of the vineyards that we have to cultivate are on the village of Chambol-Musigny also. So we have even included some Bourgogne, Bourgogne Rouge, uh, that are on the flatlands just at the bottom of the hillside of Chambol. But the main, the big piece is Chambol-Musigny which uh, for people who have traveled to Chambol, to Burgundy, and have visited Chambol, uh, you realize that it's a little apart from the national road. It's probably the highest in elevation village of the Côte de Nuit. Most of the acreage of uh, Chambol uh, Appellation is on the hillside. And for us also, for the domain Georges the two-thirds of the acreage of chambol Musigny is positioned on the hillside. And one third is uh, located on the flatter places where we have a deeper soil with more clay, etc. cetera. Altogether, these are very fragmented. I could bottle separately each of them of Chambol Musigny, but I prefer the idea to combine them together so that this represents more what is Chambol if you combine the different sections together. And it's also a way to provide a Chambol wine which is less under the influence of the vintage, because year in, year out, it's better this place, it's better this other, so the final blend is more into the fine balance around what the village has to be. That's uh, the way I proceed. Then we have some Chambol Musigny Premier Cru. In fact, in the village, there are also some sections of Premier Cru that I prefer to blend to the village because I don't have enough of it and uh, I'm not always happy with the crop. So there's a piece of uh, Chambol Premier Cru Les Plantes and Chambol Premier Cru Les Fuets also. I like Les Fuets a lot. It's a very good place. But my section is not the top quality. I'm not happy with the fruit it provides. So I blend it to the village. Altogether, those Promicru that are as we say, disclassified into the village, uh, represents a little less than 10% of the volume of village I produce. But we have also some premier cru named uh, Les Combottes, which is uh, it's a very good situation. It's um, the riverbed of an ancient river that was coming out of the canyon that is behind Chambol. And so you have to imagine that underneath the surface of the ground, it's a pile of stones left after the river has moved them and, and all that was filled up with uh, some clay. It's on the edge to Charme, very well located, and so uh, I bottle it separately. And we have a Chambol Premier Cru L'Ecra, which is a larger section, which is a very, very good vineyard because it's all facing southeast. On uh, marley soils, very rich uh, with limestone, dusty limestone, we call it active limestone because that limestone, when it's in very tiny particles like this, has a great influence on the vine uh, growing, it does not encourage at all the vigor. And so in this place, we obtain deep wines, very uh, concentrated. I don't like the word concentrated, but yes, we have a great potential in this vineyard. And we have a serious section. It's 175 hectares, which is a large section.
0: I feel like that wine and the Claude de Bussière are the wines that a lot of people have had, because there's enough of them, quantity-wise. Because
4: there is enough of it, yes. And uh, yeah, that is right. The More Saint-Denis Claude de Bussière is 2 hectares 59 uh, on one piece of uh, a vineyard, which is a real clo. The clos means a piece of land which is surrounded with a wall. And it's a real clo uh, built in the 12th century by monks. The name Labussiere comes from the abbey, the abbey de Labussiere. And uh, it's never been divided over time. The ownership has changed over time. My grandfather purchased in 53, but it's never been, it's never been divided. And, but this is a different situation. This is Moray-Saint-Denis, the next village to the north of Chambol. The quality of the soil is very different. It's much more clay there. And a thick layer of clay on stones. And it makes a specific wine. By comparison to Chambol, it has bigger structure, more tannins. It's always slower to, to age also.
0: One of the walls is on the border of Moray Saint-Denis yeah. and Chambolle, And one of the ways you've expressed it, I think, quite well, is that that wine is often expressive of Moray Saint-Denis on the palate and Chambolle on the nose. Yeah, I like, th- I like that. Yes, I like this idea. The
4: feet of the wine stay in Moray Saint-Denis, but the head is in Chambolle. Yeah.
0: And how would you, I mean, you've said it a little bit about the clay, but the difference between Moray Saint-Denis and Chambolle, in broad strokes, what is the difference?
4: Everything in Burgundy uh, is limestone and clay. What uh, makes a real difference is the proportion of each other. And uh, Chambol is very stony, so it's more, more calcaire, more, more limestone. Uh, when Moraes-Saint-Denis has more clay, often, and so is gevrey chambertin it's more clay. I think Moraes-Saint-Denis is where the, the clay
0: layer is the thickest, probably. And something you've mentioned before about Claude Bussière is that there's a little iron in there, in the soil. In this clay, yeah. And that also, it's a double fault, and the limestone has actually kind of gone vertical. So the kind of limestone changes a lot within the monopole. Exactly, yeah, which is very peculiar.
4: I've been explained that by a geologist, Françoise Vanier, who has made studies. And she, she said, you have a very, very peculiar vineyard because... Uh, Instead of sliding, the stones have bent. And so, yes, of course, when you move on the surface of the Clos de la Bussière,
0: there's a change in the age of the limestone. When I spoke with Benjamin LaRue, you know, he used to work at Clos de Epineau, and he really felt that the monks had got it right. The walls were in the right place for a good wine. He always did these micro vinifications, and he just found the whole thing was better if you just blended it. and. Um, very diverse inside the walls, soil types. But he found that they had put the walls in the right place. Do you feel the same way about Claude de Because it kind of feels like you do, like that it's diverse, but it's a good whole. Oh, yeah, I totally fulfill that.
4: Yeah, that's right. It's, I think monks had a certain instinct uh, to observe uh, everything that was helpful for agriculture. And um, they positioned the Claude de Bussière I mean, the walls just at the place where the geology underneath uh, has something
0: specific. And it's right. It's exactly where it, it has to be. For one of your iconic wines, the Bon Mar, a portion is close to Morisantini and a portion is Chambolle, and the soil changes, right?
4: Yeah, but in Bon Mar, talking about Bon Mar, the soil doesn't change with the commune border. It's opposite. It's from the top of the hillside to the bottom. And the uh, top of the hillside in Bonnemare is uh, Mali, uh same type as l'écra, with uh, a specific fossil that you can find in this place, which are very tiny uh, oysters fossils. They call it Ostrea acuminata, and the same type as those you find also in uh, Chablis. And in this place, we have that very dusty sort of limestone mixed together with the mal, with the clay, finally. And uh, it makes viticulture a different kind than to the bottom of the hillside of Bonmar, where we have a solid rock basement, limestone, of course, with a layer of clay mixed with pebbles to the surface. Those two different uh, geologies, they, logically, under the a certain Burgundy sense of terroir, they should have made two different appellations, because the wines we obtain from those two different geologies are very different. So they would they would have provided two different appellations. Historically, this is one appellation. Again. The owners uh, were nuns here, and um, they had the whole section, and they were probably, um, I don't think there is any proof anywhere, but they were probably making the wine altogether. And when appellation came as a law, everything was accepted as one appellation, but the wines are very different. But after all, there is a good sense of that, I think. The two wines are different, but they combine very well together. And I think the blend of the two different wines makes a third wine, which is better than the, in the sum of the two parts.
0: Because you vinify them separately, and then you blend
4: them. Yeah, that's uh, just to play a little bit with, with the winemaking, uh, just to, to have the pleasure to see the result of those two origins. So I like to make them separate and blend them together because I believe that's the real Bonmar. mar
0: well, Not everyone has parcels in both sectors, but you do. And is it fair to say that the terre rouge is the deeper, more concentrated one and the terre blanche is the more elegant, kind of more airy one?
4: Yes, uh, th- that's it. Yeah, you get it right. I think the terre rouge, we can call it terre rouge. It's not red. It's uh, brown, brown-red if you want, but it's not red, in fact. But it makes wine that is deep, fruit-driven, very round. And by difference, the white soil, which is upper on the hillside again, makes a a leaner wine, but more graceful, more uh, aromatic, uh, more probably floral-driven in terms of aromatics, and uh, more minerally in its uh, texture. And I like the combination of those two styles, in fact.
0: Because your dad didn't use to blend them. So it's something that you do that you decided to do. He didn't blend because he, he had kept this habit
4: from his own father to keep them separately and to sell them separately also. Because, of course, you have to remember that most of producers and Domaine Roumier included were selling. Some eventually all of their production to negotions, and uh, for my grandfather and then my father, having two different styles of Bonmar to offer was a, a comfortable situation to sell to different negotions, eventually to different prices. Also, I don't know, and uh, because of that, the my grandfather, my father then were keeping those two cuvées of Bonmar separate, and. When it came to my father, the idea to increase slightly the proportion of estate bottling, he kept the habit to have those two bottlings of Bonmar separate. And it's how he, he was proceeding with, with no specific, and I, f- I found it very strange. And I said that to him and said, oh, well, we should have two different labels for that. Telling what is the cuvee that you have sold here. Yeah. And he said, oh, it doesn't matter, it's still Bonne Mars. And uh, I said, "Uh, okay, maybe that's better if we try a little bit to blend them together and we see if that's better or not. And uh, I started under his control. (laughs) I started to blend a little bit of those two cuvées just to prove him that it was an interesting wine. And I convinced him uh, finally. And so we... Blend uh, the two cuvées of Bonmar and release only one. I think this is the vintage
0: eighty-seven, the first where it was only one cuvée of Bonmar. Not just with your own wines, but for multiple producers' wines. I often find, in terms of the, how the wines are, that there seems to be more of a connection between Amarous and Moussigny than there is between Moussigny and Bonmar. Oh yeah, that's that's for sure.
4: It's as if there was a divide. In the middle of Chambol, if you take this divide from uh, the, the canyon, from the Combe, down uh, to the bottom of the hillside, so the north part turned towards More Saint Denis, where Lecra and Bonnemar are laying, for instance, is a little bit more masculine in style, a little bit, yeah, deeper, bigger wines, by opposition to the south part of the hillside. So where Amoureuse and Musigny are laying, where we have more fragrant, food, more elegant sorts of wines, more uh, more feminine, as people say sometimes, if it has a certain sense with wine. And uh, yes, right, it's interesting to have that, that sort of a position, in fact, of styles. The Musigny is one of your smallest parcels. It's not my smallest, but it's the smallest section of, of vine. For one appellation, yes. It's 0.0996 hectare, which is positioned to the northwest angle of Musigny, at the top of it, in fact. And um, if you prolongate from the top uh, rows of Musigny down the hillside, you reach my Amoureuse, almost. It's uh, just uh, down the slope.
0: And how do you find them to be different? As wines, Moussigny and Amoureuse.
4: Oh, They have common points for the family of aromatics they express. But the structures are different. Amoureuse is extremely soft and uh, silky and uh, could eventually provide you a feeling of a sweetness, which is none but that sort. It's very tender. Where Musigny is more vibrant, a little bit more uh, alive and uh, more minerally, a little bit uh,
0: tighter. And then you make a couple wines from the Appalachian area of Jerry Chambertin. So you make a Ruchat, which is an incredible wine, and not that your others aren't, but. And then you also make a Mazweyer that you label as Charm. Exact.
4: Uh, my father contracted the Ruchat Chambertin in 1977 when. Um, an investor, Monsieur Bonnefond, has purchased a piece of, uh, of ruchotte that was for sale at, at this time. In 77, uh, a family based in uh, Gevray-Chambertin um, needed to, uh, to solve uh, an heritage problem, so they had to sell uh, their holding of Ruchot, hold what they had. And um, Charles Rousseau, Domaine Rousseau, was approached uh, to purchase it, but he felt that it was too much for him. Uh, he turned to uh, his friend, Georges Munieret Domaine Munieret gibourg to purchase with him, and also my father. And my father I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have the money to purchase this. And this is when Monsieur Bonnefond came and purchased the vineyard and provided my father the farming uh, of it as a sharecropping contract. And I took over from my father this contract in 1984. And the uh, same year, one of um, our friends said, oh, I would like to have one day a piece of vineyard uh, for me because I like wine and I would like to have a piece of vineyard. And we said, okay, we, we will check if we can find one uh, available. And we we heard of this uh, piece of uh, Mazoyer Chambertin that was for sale. And uh, this is how also I contracted this, the Mazoyer. As you mentioned it, we label it the uh, Charme. Because you have the choice to name Mazoyer or Charme.
0: It means charming in French. So it's... It is
4: uh, charming, which is also something that applies to the wine, because it's very, very, very
0: nice wine. Yeah. And pretty different than the Ruchat.
4: Yeah, there are, again here, this sort of a position of style. Uh, Ruchat is positioned quite high on the hillside at a place where there is some cool air drifting from the Combe of Gevray. So it's a later to ripen sort of place. And it's also a place where the the soil is very, very stony. Rochotte means little rocks, little stones. And uh, it's a very stony place. It makes a very, very elegant, very pure, almost Chambol type sort of chambertin. And uh, the Mazoyer de Charme coming from the Masoyer, makes uh, a rounder, very sexy type of wine, very charming, very, very nice wine, uh,
0: different type of wines. Those two are shaped totally different. It's interesting to me that the Muniré-Gibourg parcel of Roussard and the Rousseau parcel on yours were all sort of the same holding because Rousseau has the Clos de Roussard, right? And that's it's a little different. Like the soil's a little different and it's a little bit above the path.
4: Yes, yes. Uh, and, uh, Charles Rousseau purchased this this piece because it had a specific uh, place. It's uh, a claw. and uh, it's also positioned on um, on a place where there is uh, a type of limestone we call olit. We uh, let limestone. Thank you for the translation. I have a little bit because I'm just uh, aside to the south of the Clos des Richat. We have a little bit of this orlite, but not as much as in the Claw. And the Munier section of Ruchotte is just, just below the Rousseau Clos des Richottes. And as you mentioned, there is a lane, and this lane is just positioned on a fault. And so below the fault, there is no longer this sort of uh, limestone. It's another type.
0: But altogether, it's very good. Uh, Ruchat is very good. Winemaking aside, it seems to me like yours is more akin to the Muniré-Giborg one, and maybe for this reason.
4: Yes, probably.
0: What I mean by that is there's a textural presence that almost reminds me of Nebbiolo. And with the Clos de from Rousseau, it's actually very pretty. The fruit's very pretty, yeah. and it's less textural. That's what I'm referring to.
4: I see, I see. Yeah, it's right.
0: It's probably because of the olit, probably sometimes when people have come in they've said historically of course clones are a different part of this but historically the vine material in Gevrey and brochon is different than the kind of vine material that you might find in chambol and since you work in really important vineyards in both of those places how do you feel about that kind of comment i know sometimes you work with clones but do you feel that the vine material is different in these places yes there's something uh, it's right uh Certainly because at a certain
4: time people in the village were working a little bit together and uh, they had over time developed village selection, let's say. I also think and we we noticed this, that the Pinot Noir is not a very stable varietal and um, it finds ways to adapt itself to the place it is grown. The adaptation makes it a little different by the way it grows the dimension of the berries number of seeds and things like that may vary a little bit these are adaptations to the place they grow and it's probably something that happens also uh, for the village uh, selections
0: so do you find a different approach then in the vineyard or the cellar i've heard some people say things like they would use whole cluster on one and not another
4: No, I don't think like that. At the contrary, I I prefer to manage the same way the winemaking. And then only the difference of what the grapes contain makes a difference in taste in the wine. I prefer to proceed the same way. But sometimes, yes, you have to, to proceed the viticultural work on different ways, different periods also, because they do not have the same growth speed and not the same disease sensibility also and so yeah of course we have to adapt because we need to be close to the, to the viticulture for every specific place in fact but after all when it's about winemaking I prefer to generalize the techniques the same so that the differences are just related to what the grapes are containing Do you find
0: that there's less virus in Gevray? Yes and in more also We have more viruses
4: in Chambol. It's probably related to the shallow earth layers. And then uh, in that uh, shallow place where the root system is established, because it's more shallow, we have a higher concentration of uh, worms than nematodes that
0: are making the virus to travel from a vine to another there's more clay in Gevre and there's more clay in Morisantini, and there seems to be less virus, and so maybe the nematodes don't travel as well in that kind of soil.
4: They dilute into the, the thickness of the ground, I think.
0: And it also seems that the yields are less in Shambol. so that would make sense too, because… Because it's had, poorer. It's poorer soils. Naturally, it gives you something else.
4: Yes, exactly. It, it has an influence on that. and Yes, it's right. This is what I mentioned about the white soil, what we call white soil. These are places where it does not encourage any kind of vigor in the vine. And you can see the result of that, the consequence of that. The berries are always smaller in those places than they are, for instance, in the Clos de la Bussière, where it's more clay. And because the size of the berry is smaller, there is a bigger proportion of skin to the volume of juice they contain which uh, has also an influence on the style of the wine.
0: Because when people talk about vine material in Gevrey, they often say that the berries are bigger than, say, vone or yeah. Chambolle. Yeah. And the other thing that's so kind of notable about Gevre is how many people seem to have vines that are over 100 years old. Like many people. <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah, <yes. laughs> <And> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Which is rare in Chambol. Well, yes, that's right. It's probably, I didn't think like that, never. Yeah, you are Right. It's probably related to, again, the, the virus, because when you have virus in the vines, it doesn't uh, help to make them age very well. So uh, it's probably related to that.
0: There are a couple other things to mention. So at one time, you made Clos Rougeau from two different parcels, and then from one parcel, and then from no parcels, so you don't make it anymore. And then you just started making an Echizeau, Yeah. and then you do make a white wine. So yeah. I, Probably we should talk about those briefly before we touch on some other issues. All right, okay.
4: And so we had the Clovougeau until uh, 1996. I made it 14, 15 years. We had two pieces, two holdings. The one at the bottom, which was representing a, a third of the Clovougeau acreage, and two thirds were positioned higher by the Grand Montpertuis, a very good place. Well, that's one of the best places. It's right? one of the best, probably. But my cousin took uh, this uh, Grand Vaupertui section first. And uh, so I had to deal from 1986 to 1996 with just the, the bottom of the Clovougeau section. And it made a different type of Clovougeau, a little thicker, a little uh, more um, rustic in style. But that aged very well. So it goes very well in aging. Not the cloveuxjo was a different type of approach to winemaking. It uh, told me, at least, that not searching for too much of extraction was sometimes a very good attitude. Because to make a real Chambol, which has everything it contains to age well, you have to extract a little bit. But when it's about cloveuxjo, it's a different attitude. So uh, it was interesting to match those two sorts of uh, winemakings. In fact,
0: sometimes I feel like people who grow up in a place have the view of how to make wine of that place, and then sometimes they get a parcel somewhere else and they make it as if it were that.
4: Yeah, it's another, what we said before about the ruchot for instance, when you compare the ruchot from Eric Rousseau to the Munier sisters and mine, we are on three different villages making the same appellation. And uh, of course, we intake, we bring in the wine a little bit of ourselves and also the way we think around wine. And it's probably the reason why uh, the Munier sisters' uh, Ruchotte has a little bit of Von in style in it. Mine probably a little bit of Chambol and, uh, and Eric a little bit of Jovray influences in style. It's probably the reason. When you are in a village uh, that uh, by nature offers you a certain style, you get uh, the habit to find, the, the, to have the feelings of this uh, style and you want it from any of, of your holdings
0: of vines. Something you've pointed out to me sort of in this context before is that you feel that you have red wine yeast and bacteria in your cellar that's associated with making a good red wine ferment in your cellar. And for this reason, sometimes it's a little more challenging to make white. And you can see how that would apply to kind of what we're talking about here. If someone had certain kinds of yeast in their cellar in Chambolle, how it might be more challenging to make a wine from somewhere else. Mm-hmm.
4: We like to uh, say that we do a lot of things, and in fact, we talk a lot about winemaking. But talking about what is the style of a wine from a specific estate, it's interesting to question where this style, which is sometimes recognizable, comes from. Uh, And often the answer is to say, oh, because I punch down at this time, I keep this temperature, etc., blah, 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 around winemaking techniques. And sometimes I wonder if it's not something totally different that operates in the wine instead of us, instead of our decision. And I believe that yeast strain living in the building are reproducing from a year to another. And probably they are part of what builds the estate style. It's part of that, only a part, but it counts a lot, I believe. And for those same reasons, the yeast that have developed in my buildings are designed for red wines. And they do not operate as well in the white wine, if I make a white wine. Same with bacteria. And um, it's probably a reason why making only one little volume of white wine makes it a little bit more challenging because we don't have the same uh, yeasts and bacteria living. And if I had um, a big volume of white wine, certainly some strains would develop by themselves and impose themselves. It would be a combination, a nice combination. You can be good on those two because you make a certain mass of each, which is not my case.
0: That's not to take away from your Corton Charlemagne because it's very good. It's in that kind of Pernot steely style. It's brisk. It needs a little time. Yes. The
4: vineyard section is laying on the Pernand Vergelès, on the west exposition, which is a little um, less warm than east or south because it takes the sun directly to the ground only in the afternoon. Whereas if you are on the east side of the hillside. Then you receive the first sun rays in the morning. Then the temperature raises up until noon and restitutes in the afternoon this heat to the vine, which is different when you are turned to the west. And it makes then, as a consequence, also a type of grape that ripens a little later. It makes the veraison a little later, but also the harvest.
0: And then you just started making Eschezo, right?
4: Yeah, we started. Uh, investors had purchased the vineyard in Eschezo uh, in and asked me if I want, would be interested in a the, in the piece of Eschezo. And I, of course, I said yes. And this has uh, occurred in uh, 2016. It's a small piece. It's very little.
0: So how do you see it working in Flay Eschezo compared to the Gevry-Chambertin and chambon Musigny communes? There's nothing
4: very different from what I know in Chambol, for instance. It's, it's a place which is en orveau, in the terms of terroir, lieu dit, which is very warm because it's a place where the wind doesn't blow in that place. It goes above. It operates like an oven almost to the sun. It's a place that is quite quick to ripen. I'm looking forward to trying it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What do you
4: think about it so far? I discover the style, and I like it. I like the substance of the wine, because it's a very open type of wine. How uh, should I say that? Uh, Amoureuse can be very versatile. It can reach the top, but sometimes be a little bit discreet uh, also. You have to wait then, because the style of Amoureuse will be more obvious after a few years of aging. When it seems like uh, a Chisot is more... Uh, is more immediately ready to show itself quite well, to express everything it contains very well. I make very little of that. It's about two barrels, and it does not represent the style of every Eschizo. At that dimension, I cannot mean that. It's the feeling I get so far.
0: To speak generally of what you're looking for in the vineyard, you know, some people do the trellising lower, some people do it higher, and I think you like the trellis a little higher, right? I'm
4: not the highest, but I thought that it was a good idea to edge a little higher the vines for a reason that if we want to think what the climate will become uh, if we extrapolate what has been happening the last 20 years to the next 20 years, uh, then we have to change several things on the way we manage the canopy. because. the last year's proof that uh, we reach a high level of sugar earlier than the ideal uh, ripeness of the tannins and the aromatics on the grapes. I mean, huh? so if you want to recover a good adjustment between those two critical parts of what will be the wine in the future, we should, I think, keep the same canopy exposition to sunshine so that we don't regress as a photosynthesis. But we should find ways to lower the the average temperature around the grape zone. And a good way would be to project some shade on the grape zone and also on the ground, by the way. And the best way to have shades is to grow a little higher so that you project from a row of vine to the next the shade and uh, this is w- what we have done but it, there are v- vintners who do that a little higher even than me i'm not that high s- yet but probably we are going to move progressively probably this is the approach
0: and what do you think about the difference between cordon royat and guillot oh it's mainly a question of fruit
4: quantity because the royat uses the lower buds on the on the pruning uh, system. And uh, for the vine, the vine is always more vigorous to the top of the wood system rather than to the bottom. With the Roya, we prune with the less vigorous buds, but all of them carry the same level of energy from the plant itself. So it means that every bud we keep for the Roya should carry the same kind of fruit. So it makes equal fruits on the vine system, but the volume of of grape is less than with guillot. The disadvantage of the guillot is that it's a long pruning system. So of course we have the last buds on the cane that can have lots of fruit because this is where we have the, the biggest vigor. And as much as you progress down by the trunk of the vine, we have smaller grapes and less of them also. Uh, but the advantage is that you can regulate production better than with the Roya. With the Roya, you, you have to take what is given and there is sometimes very little because the figure is very low. With the Guyot, you can wait until... The bud break has operated and everything is growing, the shoots are grown. You can count the number of of grapes you have, uh, the amount of berries that they will provide also, and decide if you go for green harvest. And then you remove the end of the cane grapes uh, rather than the the first buds. Because um, on the end of the cane, then you will have the biggest berries. You can adjust to the vintage conditions better than with the Roya, I think.
0: Do you prefer one in certain situations and the other in another?
4: I mainly prune Guyot, because Chambol uh, it does not yield a lot, and if I convert everything, why, uh, I produce nothing. And uh, technically, I feel better with the Guyot. At uh, the Domaine Roumier, also, we have kept lots of old vines. The musigny was planted in 1905, and maybe even earlier, it's not clear and we have another section in amoureuse that was planted also in 1928 two of them so some that were planted by my grandfather uh, we have still a lot of them and uh, if you want to keep your old vine uh, for another decade or more eventually you have to to not overcrop also it's something p- to take in consideration also
0: you prefer to prune back rather than to green harvest is that correct i prefer to
4: do things ahead rather than uh, having to do another work uh, which is very demanding in time and uh, which can be the consequence to some mistakes and so i think green harvest tell you that oh there's something that you have to change in the vineyard management probably by fertilizing uh, less and frankly we don't do green harvest uh, on a systematic way We have had a period of time in the 80s where it was still necessary, but it's a long time I've not done of it. Even in young vines. Because sometimes the young vines are more vigorous, they produce bigger berries and more crop, but it's not necessity.
0: And I think one of the real keys for understanding your work, in terms of vineyard work, is that you really moved away from chemicals. You really moved away from chemical fertilizers and chemical weed killers and you went towards using organic fertilizers and you got rid of chemicals in the eighties and it was kind of your generation that made that realization and started acting on it people like yourself and LaFon, right
4: when we take that sort of decision we are not alone i mean we talk and we exchange a lot with some friends uh, around what what kind of evolution should we go for and um that sort of decision uh, is always a combination of different observations. We, with Dominique Lafont, because we are good friends, we have talked a lot, a lot of that, and also with uh, Jacques S, uh, Gérard Potel, uh, Jacques Dangerville. These were people who we've talked a lot, also around all this. Um, it was obvious that first we are exposed as vintners working in the on the vineyard with the vine, the first exposed to every chemical that you would spray, of course, it's a necessity to keep the disease away, but also you have to survive <laughs> if you if you operate with poisonous substances, then there is one day that probably the vine survives with no disease, but then these are consequences upon the human being working and so. We said we should, we should try to pay attention to what we spray. This was before the mood uh, for everything that is organic, that is now very much into the air. But we were at the period that we started to talk like that. And what was uh, the easiest to do was to stop the fertilizers. And in case we have vines that need some fertilization, because some need sometimes the same parcels of ground are growing vines for more than a, a thousand years in the same place, so we have to restitute a part of something. but stop with uh, chemical things and turn to organic composts and things like that. This is the first evolution I have given, and I said, okay, if I'm logical, there's also something living in on the ground that we need to transfer the nutrients to the roots, and if you want them to survive, we should Stopped using the weed killers because these have consequences also on what is living on the ground. So I stopped the weed killers also, I and Dominique Lafont and many other people uh, like us. And uh, the other idea on, behind all that was also about winemaking because winemaking occurs uh, with yeasts. And the yeasts are some of them, not all, but some of them are coming with the fruit from the vine. And uh, if you have sprayed chemicals, then the yeast may not survive or there are less of them and maybe not all the strains that you would like to operate. Because yeast are mushrooms, uh, but also are mushrooms, the diseases that affect the vines. So mildew, powdery mildew, these are mushrooms. And so the chemicals that we would spray To protect out of this disease would have effects on the yeasts. And residuals eventually would come with the fruit to the fermenters. And if you want native yeast to operate and having uh, proper fermentation dynamics, then uh, we should have no residual, we should have not sprayed on the season also uh, dangerous uh, substances. So it came like natural to get rid of everything that was very perfect molecules, probably by efficiency, but that could have also very bad consequences. And uh, this is how we became more organic uh, and eventually now totally organic. But it didn't come all of a sudden. It didn't uh, happen all of a sudden, you know.
0: There was also an issue with pH, right? That the soil... Because it had been exposed to these chemicals, the wines were coming in with a different pH.
4: Yeah, it's not the fact of chemicals. It's mainly the fact of uh, certain fertilizers. In the 50s, 60s, uh, this was potassium. People realized that potassium had uh, very great potential to encourage the vine to deliver more fruits and this has saved some vintages in the 50s after war where the vines had almost received no treatment nothing the use of some potassium has saved the viticulturists sometimes but the abuse of this potassium has brought consequences like yes the ph to go higher because uh, those elements that are provided as feeding to the vine go to the sap and then to the juice, the grape contain. And uh, the minerals like potassium buffer the acidity and uh, make the pH a bit higher. So we make a blank period with no potassium. And uh, I realized the pH by nature came to a good level Um, we have to accept variations of pH related to the vintage effects. I mean, the climate is different from a year to another. The amount of rains also can differ. And so the amount of mineral going to the grapes can be something that has consequences and makes the pH variable from a vintage to another. This is normal to accept. But we have good
0: levels of pH now with no problem. But that played into something that was key in your winemaking, which is you were looking for a delay in mallow. You didn't want the mallow to happen right away. And when you had higher pH and lower acidity, mallow tends to happen earlier. Exactly. So there are several thoughts that played into your decision-making to delay mallow until the spring. In other words, to not have it happen in the winter after the ferment. But that was one of them.
4: It's one of them. The fact that I had noticed that, for instance, in the vintage, like 85, the pH were by nature quite high in that vintage. But the cuvées where the pH kept lower had later malolactic fermentations. And I noticed also that those cuvées had lost less color after malo and less aromatics. The malolactic fermentation was let's say, more respectful to the integrity of the wines. And so I said, maybe there is something with uh, the time that uh, the malolactic fermentation operates. I should try to not encourage the mallow early, and I should try to, to have a certain amount of time between the end of the alcoholic fermentation and the beginning of the malolactic fermentation. And finally, I realized that it was working quite well because the malolactic fermentations, then, are a little slower and they do not break the balance of the wine as much. And also, there's another effect that is, I think, quite interesting, is the fact that the first consequence of the malolactic fermentation is that the pH brings a little higher. And then you have to sulfite the wine to make sure that uh, bacteria would no longer operate after the malolactic fermentation is finished. And um, if you delay the malolactic fermentation, then you position your sulfite a little later also in the aging. And uh, the consequence is that at the time of bottling, you have added less of sulfur. You use less sulfur. And uh, even a time of a uh, barrel journey occurs where the pH is at the minimum level possible in this wine, which means that it has also consequences on the way the wine is is stabilized uh, after the aging in barrel. All th- things together, the idea of uh,
0: delayed malolactic fermentation was a useful thing. Well, it seems like it has big ramifications because you can use less sulfur, then the color is darker because sulfur strips color. And it seems like the aromatics are different. Yeah. I believe strongly that the
4: aging of a wine is very much helped with a kind of reductive status to the wine. And uh, the best way to keep your wine reductive is to use the lees. And uh, if the malolactic fermentation is delayed, the journey with the lees and with the low pH together is longer. And then it makes the wine more uh, probably enriched by the lees themselves, but also because it's a little reductive. We obtain wines with a better depth, a better dimension. And I think that Eventually, also, we have less VA. Uh, it's not, I think, I noticed it, but I n- discovered it after I've tried the first years. And then, the best way, above all, on vintages where you have a, a certain high pH, uh, if you want to keep away from malolactic fermentation, the only parameter to play with is the temperature. So I had to chill down, the wine before we go to barrel, so that we do not encourage uh, the population of bacteria to develop and start the malolactic fermentation. And um, altogether, I don't know what counts the more, but there is a result which is helpful and which is encouraging about uh, the stability of the wine, the use of sulfite,
0: and also the less VA which we do obtain in the wine. And that's. Um actually kind of counter to what you were told in school, right? Like they said, get the mallow done early and you'll avoid VA. But your realization, basically through tasting, was that you could avoid VA, which is volatile acidity, the other way, by actually delaying mallow through the use of cold temperature.
4: Yeah, it was contra to what the onologists were promoting as ideas, of course. Because the experience with past vintages sometimes was encouraging to precautions because, uh, of course, the 50s, the 60s, this is the beginning of the enology science, let's say. I think in the 50s, nobody knew what was happening during malolactic fermentation. When they discovered these were lactic bacteria that were operating, they said, uh, oh, okay, so what could we do? But before that, some people had accidents in the, the barrel uh, journeys because they had uh, wines going under volatile acidity and so they said, oh, well, we should provocate this and sulfide so that we don't have this VA development. And uh, the onologists were promoting that, in fact. But maybe because I have studied a little bit of enology, because of Uh, trying to do things different than from my father's time, but by nature, I'm a human being, so of course, sometimes you want to prove your father that you can change the the ways and you can do better than him. Uh, I wanted to do things different. And so all that together, I said, oh, maybe it could be a good idea to do
0: a a late mallow instead of early. And the other thing is that you talked to some people that had, had experience as winemakers for a long time without yeah. going to school because you were in a school generation or yeah. you were in the late 70s moving into the 80s but there were people still around like D'Angerville yes. who that wasn't their generation no and they weren't experiencing the problem and they were okay if Mallow took a while people like Lafon's dad like
4: yes, right? he Forrest just let it is,
0: yeah. roll right he was just fine with it yes. if it took forever and he had a really cold cellar so it took forever
4: yes exactly Yeah. so yeah, keeping an eye to different uh, experiences of people was very helpful also, yes. Uh, certainly at my father's time, uh, people were would not dare to exchange about technical points. Uh, they were a little bit jealous to keep their methods a little secret. They didn't want to share as much as uh, my generation started to talk and, uh, and share several uh, technical
0: points more easily. It seems like that was a big deal, frankly. I mean, that seems to have really set Burgundy onto being quite successful. Just that, the fact that people tasted with each other and talked to each other, it seems like it really changed the region. Yes, probably.
4: That's for sure. Uh, also, well, we, we had better knowledge of what was happening in the wine, even more than in uh, the viticulture, because we, we now know more about viticulture also, but the first point of research was an analogy more than viticulture. I think it's. I'm born at a very interesting period where it was possible to change things, whereas for the young generation today, you, they have to go for more things into details
0: to do new things. It seems like something else that was key, and you've sort of already alluded to it, was temperature control. So you like to kind of maintain a temperature of fermentation that doesn't go over 30 degrees Celsius. And then, as you mentioned, after that period of time, after you get it off the skins, you like to put it cold into barrel so that you don't start the mallow.
4: If you think of uh, driving a car, you need uh, an accelerator and uh, you need also uh, a steering wheel. There is no, nothing like that to drive uh, fermentation. The only way is to use the temperature control. And uh, in the 50s or 60s, very few people could afford purchasing an equipment. There was almost no equipment to control the temperature. To produce some cold, for instance, some heat was more easy because you had a burner or something, it was easy, but to have some cold at your winery itself does not exist or very expensive. It was more easy uh, to have that sort of equipment in the 80s. And uh, my first investment, uh, technical investment at the estate, was to purchase uh, a cooling machine. And I had mine in 1983, which has been a demonstration of uh, the efficiency of the temperature control which my father didn't have before. I oh, had a system but that was not efficient at all, not enough let's say. And uh, this was a very useful uh, tool uh, to obtain uh, a wine that has gone through the, all the phases of uh, the cuvaison the right way and obtain a wine on which I'm sure I have a better control of the style. Because, you know, after all, making a wine is, uh, it's in the same time infusing the grape, the grape skins, like making tea, but it's infusion of grape skin, and in the same time fermenting the sugar to obtain alcohol instead, alcohol plus... uh, Superior alcohol plus aldehydes and everything that comes together with that. And uh, you have to manage the two. Also, it's thanks to the cooling equipment that we were able to proceed in several steps. Thinking of soak first, that is infusion, without alcohol. So only elements that can be dissolved into water, can go to the juice, but with sugar uh, instead, which can help to extract also and to stabilize. And then you go for the fermentation on the second step. To do those two operations in two different steps, the only way is to have a control of the temperature. And then if you want eventually To delay the malolactic fermentation. Again, the temperature is another way to control that. And if you want to make sure also that all your sugars are totally fermented to the last grams, then you have to master the temperature of the fermentation during the fermentation itself, not go beyond the 32 centigrade, for instance, and etc. So yeah, this was a very useful uh, equipment, uh, which we could afford to
0: obtain in the 80s. Something else that seems important, and you've already spoken about it a little bit, is that interplay at the different stages, both as it's fermenting and then as it's aging, between oxidation and reduction. If it's moving into reduction, then maybe a pump over, but keeping it on the lees to keep it in a reductive state to avoid the oxidation, because the oxidation changes the tannins and strips color, doing less racking than maybe would have been done a generation before you, for example. So it seems like there's always this Tight rope of walking the line between oxidation and reduction with the reds.
4: Yeah, the reduction potential of, uh, of wine is something that you can measure, but uh, the indication is not very useful, in fact, so nobody measures this, the uh, oxido-reduction potential. But, of course, the reduction is a very strong key point to the, the dimension of the wine, the type of aromatics you are building up. But so far, we don't master that very well. So we use what we have under hands. So that's the lees, which are the most efficient. If you don't have the lees because you have racked too many times, each racking, you remove lees, you know. And if the one is too clean and you want to keep it under control, then you have to use sulfur because sulfur helps a lot to reduction also. And um, I think it's very important now to think of the effect on health also of sulfur and reduce the amount of sulfur. But you have to match that with the capacity of the wine to go through the barrel journey.
0: And the reason that you can keep it on the leaves more in this era than maybe in a previous era is that the fruit is coming in cleaner.
4: Yeah, the sorting table. So far, the global warming has been helpful also on that, I have to admit. It's more easy uh, today where we have drier seasons than in the 70s or 60s where it was sometimes very rainy uh, until harvest almost
0: do you think that burgundy's been a beneficiary so far of climate change i mean i know there's been hail and frost but
4: oh yeah okay of course because these are accidents and so this will always exist i'm pretty much sure i can bet on that but so far yes the global warming has been kind of helpful just to make sure that everything is ripe when we pick, which was not the case before. But what is good to a certain point can be also uh, destroying if you extrapolate, if you go too far And that. I'm sometimes fascinated by the off-vintages and the potential they have to age and to provide uh, surprises in wines uh, after a few years. And... uh, I'm afraid that sometimes too much of ripeness it imposes style which I have not created and I don't desire Or sometimes. And um, probably too much of ripeness keeps the Vintner style a little uh, behind. And the vintage uh, replaces the man who's making the wine. Which maybe for most of the wines of the planet it would not change. But uh, for Burgundy it removes a part of what makes Burgundy so special.
0: Yeah, I remember, obviously it's a slightly different region, but Jean Foyard told me, you know, when you have a warm vintage, you also have a warm vintage ferment. It behaves differently in the winery. Because oh, yeah. yeah. Temperatures are different and the sugars are different.
4: Yes. But uh, my main concern is the fact that Burgundy is special because it's a place where, through time, historically the vineyards have been uh, divided by donations and everything. So it's very spread around. and. Uh, we make wines that represent a certain style, a house style, an estate style, let's say, because the vineyards are not in the same spot. You know, if you think of if I were the only the only owner of all the Bonmar, and this was all I have, uh, my style was Bonmar would be Bonmar, and my style individual would be very little in that. But if in Bonnmar, I'm in six different positions, which is the case, then, of course, I will use everything I get from those sections, but I can impose my style a little bit. But I have to deal with the vintage, with the climate, and if the climate offers me a very high level of ripeness, then my control on the style also disappears because then the climate takes the control of the style. And uh, that's why I'm, I'm afraid of uh, the global warming, not for the fact that it's going to change the style of the wine. Of course, it's going to have an influence. But I'm afraid because Burgundy loses a part of its specificity to make very
0: human-driven sorts of wines, rather than climate-driven. Something else that has changed a little bit from your father's era And even from when you were first getting going, is that you're doing less crushing of fruit for red wine now, right? Oh, that's
4: also because of um, the fruit that has changed a little bit. Less crushing, even none. Also because I want to ferment. Again, I want to have my soak first, and then to have my fermentation. If I crush, then I provide better conditions for the fermentation to start sooner.
0: The like yeast that. get in contact with the yeah. juice and they start going. And yeah. you want that to be slower.
4: Yeah, I want it, yes, to be a little delayed. Just a question of two or three days, it's enough. But something noticeable also is that we punch down much less. And uh, punching down in Burgundy uh, was something very common with fruits that contain uh, little uh, tannins. But now, because we have more sunshine, the grapes contain more tannins and so we have to reduce the number of punching down. So really what it
0: has been is a constant dialogue with the environment, basically. It's only that.
4: Yeah, sure. Yeah.
0: We only have a little bit of time left, but if I were to read many people, they would put you at the very pinnacle of Burgundy. You're thought of as one of the the real greats. Oh. What would you like to still achieve in your career? <laughs> For me, this would be like,
4: I've never tried any biodynamic things. Strange, maybe, but I've never tried nothing like that. So maybe it would be to uh, convert or try biodynamic methods. I find this very unclear and very uh, mysterious. I need to learn a little bit of that. Um... I'm a spoiled man because I'm born in a great region, in a family where we have these holdings. I'm spoiled and I don't want to spoil anything of that. And um, I have to transmit. And that's something to work on,
6: too.
0: Christophe Rumié has known intuitively, but also through experience, that what is good can also destroy, and that the human role of the winemaker is to keep the line between the two. Thank you very much for being here today.
4: Thank you, Livy, because you are very, very helpful
0: asking the good questions. Christophe Rumié of Domaine George Rumié, and also Christophe Rumié in Chambon moussigny in Burgundy in France. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Lévi Dalton. Still curious about that discussion around delayed mallow that turned out to be such a key aspect of Christophe Roumier's technique when it comes to winemaking? Christophe mentioned in his interview that the ability to measure the completion of a malolactic wasn't available until the second half of the 20th century in Burgundy. Here's the clip from All Drink to That episode 249 when Michel Lafarge recalls the introduction of the technique in 1959. Michel Lafarge began vinifying wines in Burgundy in the 1940s. His interview was translated
6: by Daniel Jonas. And puis il y a aussi un un facteur qui m'a marqué euh, dans l'année 59, c'est la découverte de la malo, de l'analyse de la malolactique. On a pu savoir à partir de 59 par l'analyse si les malolactiques étaient faites ou pas faites avant les mises en bouteille.
7: So one thing that uh, that uh, was a was a huge factor in '59 was the year that they discovered the importance of malolactic fermentation, and how to determine whether the wines had achieved malolactic fermentation.
6: Et ça, moi, j'ai, j'ai, re, en, avec le millésime '57, j'étais obligé de ouvrir des vins et la fermentation malo était pas faite. Il a fallu déboucher les bouteilles, les repasser en fût et puis les uh-huh. remettre en bouteille.
7: 50, C'était triste. The fifty-seven, uh, he had to op- re-open bottles that had been corked, put them back in a uh, tank to uh, complete the malolactic fermentation and then bottle them again.
6: Je pense que ce que l'oenologie a apporté, ça a permis de toujours réussir un vin qui soit commercialisable, sans dé- sans, pratiquement sans défaut alors que avant le, le, les années très anciennes début du, du, du 20e, où on, les vignerons réussissaient très bien certains millésimes par un peu par la tradition mais ils n'avaient pas les éléments toujours pour réussir un millésime plus difficile.
7: The analogy in understanding the technical side has helped them succeed in producing wines almost every year that are good and uh, healthy. Whereas before that understanding, it was just the instincts or the
0: savoir-faire of the vigneron uh, somewhat left to chance. Now that you've heard Michel Lafarge, something to think about is that 1959 is a few years after the time that Christophe Rumié's father began working at the Rumié family domain in chambolle moussigny He began around 1953. And that's to say that by the time the 1980s came around, there were still many people in Burgundy who had been vinifying wines before the process of malolactic was really completely understood. For example, Dominique Lafon shared with me this story about his friend, Mr. Belanger.
1: Everybody was saying, oh, I have long fermentation, it's better for my wine, blah, 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 and all that, and you hear that everywhere. And um, my father had a guy who was working in the cellar Monsieur Bélanger, wonderful man, who's known me as a kid, and uh, actually died fairly old, and I kept contact with him. I used to invite him every year to taste the wine with me, and uh, one day he came and visited uh, in the spring, March, April, and all my wines were going through malolactic fermentation. I gave him to taste the wine, I said, oh, your wine's they have not finished uh, the fermentations. And I said, uh, no, 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 the sugar fermentation is finished. No, no, it's not finished, it's fermenting. I was like, no, 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 but it's, it's because it's going through malolactic fermentation. But at this time, nobody was checking malolactic fermentation. So it's like long fermentation included sugar and malolactic
0: without knowing what was doing what. You can also consider how Benjamin LaRue, whose career really gets going as a winemaker in Burgundy in the 1990s, how he summed up the traditional view of malolactic in episode 467 of All Drink to That. The old grower said, you know, we've experienced the later is the mallow, the better it is for the wine, which means in the past we were probably keeping the wine on finalies for, you know, nine months. Then you have malolactic starting in spring for couple of weeks, and then you're racking after a year, and then you have only six months on finallys at the end of the aging. Becky Wasserman also highlighted that while the timing of Malolactic may be a stylistic choice, there are top wines made in really contrasting ways.
2: And I also learned that there is no one recipe. You know, if you look at the way Rousseau makes wines, I mean, it's completely different, and it would absolutely shock somebody else. He likes a a very comfortable, quite quick mallow, where other people, ah, I'm so glad the mallows haven't started and it's now three years. You, you, you know? All of that.
0: And on this topic of the timing of malolactic, Claude de Nicolai of Chandon de Briae sums up what might be a winemaking position in the middle, saying that in some years her wines go one way with mallow, and in other years, another. Do the mallows happen fairly quickly? It depends on the level of acidity, but usually if they are uh, low acids, like in 14, for example, the malolactic happens quite right away, especially if the cellar are still hot, because it's helpful for the bacteria to to work. Sometimes it happens a, a year after, like 13 was the opposite, was high in acid. So we even had to heat a little bit the cellar to get the bacteria, the natural bacteria goes on and do their work. What are your thoughts about Delayed Mallow and this aspect of winemaking? Let us know in a comment online. While researching questions for this interview, I read the book Coat Door by Clive Coates and referred to the writing of Neil Martin on vinnis.com as well as write-ups on winehog.org. If you would like to know more about the wines of Domaine George Roumier, I would recommend all of those resources to you. It is for sure that I would not have asked certain questions in this particular interview if I had not read those writings first. Also, I would like to thank Robert Bohr for his help in making this interview with Christophe Rumié a reality. Thank you, Robert. So the Amaroos is one parcel. Yeah, only one. And with Baumar and Moussigny, it's multiple parcels, right? Uh, Moussigny is one piece, oh, one, one parcel. up today. Uh, No, no, it's okay. Uh,
4: it's one very tiny. It's nine meters Of course it is. I'm sorry. I don't know why. (laughs) Yeah, I wish it was bigger, of course. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) It's not forbidden to dream uh, when they.